0: God repeated to them the standards and instructions that he had given to the Hebrews when he brought them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. The same instructions that were given to the first generation are now given to the second. Deuteronomy is, in essence, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers repackaged and summarized. And the book opens in verse 1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel, on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. On this side, on Moses' side, remember he never entered in, so they are now on the uh, the eastern bank of the Jordan getting ready to cross over. Verse 3 tells us that this all occurs after 40 years since the Exodus. The Hebrews now have just defeated two kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of the Bashanites. They are poised now to enter the promised land. But first, Moses takes them back in time to the day when their fathers were really in the same situation. They too were at Kadesh Barnea, ready to enter the land. But they failed. They failed to trust the Lord. They failed to go in and take what was theirs. And Moses reminds the second generation of the failure of the first. He warns them in order to encourage them not to repeat the same mistakes. I think one of a parent's frustrations is the failure of his kids to remember. Of course, if I promise my boys a new Nintendo game, their memory peaks. I get reminded every hour on the hour. But if I tell them to take out the trash, suddenly a case of Alzheimer's sets in. When did you ever say that? I don't remember you saying that. No one told me that. One of the key words in the book of Deuteronomy is the word remember. It appears 14 times in the book. The second generation had a responsibility to remember the truths of God, the mistakes that their fathers made so that they don't repeat them, so that they obey God's truth. And so do we. We too have the responsibility to remember. God goes to tremendous lengths, enormous effort to teach us lessons that we tend to forget overnight. One of the primary lessons of the book of Deuteronomy is our responsibility to remember. In the first three chapters, Moses retraces the nation's 40-year history. They appointed leaders. And they marched from Horeb, or Mount Sinai, to Kadesh. There they sent spies into the land. When the report came back that the land was occupied by giants, the people began to grumble and murmur. And they began to doubt God's faithfulness. Moses told the first generation in verse 29 of chapter 1, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all that He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, God had carried them piggyback. God had just picked them up and carried them from time to time. It reminds me of that famous poem, Footprints in the Sand. You know the one I'm talking about. A man has a dream in which he's walking down the beach. He sees two footprints, two sets of footprints and realizes that God has been walking with him along the seashore. But on occasion, during the trials and the difficulties, the man sees only one set of footprints and so he asks the Lord why the Lord left him during those tough times. But the Lord answers him and says, no, I didn't leave you. In fact... I was the one that was carrying you during those tough times. And that's why you saw only one set of footprints. But Israel at Kadesh Barnea reminds me of another poem about prints in the sand. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared and I asked the Lord, What have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for human feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your duff. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their duff prints in the sand. <laughs> hey, that's exactly what happened to the first generation that left Egypt. Over and over again, God carried them. <clears throat> he proved His faithfulness to them again and again. He carried them piggyback. And yet they refused to trust trust Him, and literally God dropped them in the sand. They died in the wilderness. Guys, if we don't trust the Lord, if we don't enter in, when we don't take advantages of the opportunities that He gives us and step out in faith, He too might drop us in the sand. In chapter 2, verse 1, Moses says that for the next 40 years, they skirted or literally circled Mount Seir. Which was the mountain range south of the Dead Sea. It's sad, but they just went around in circles for 40 years. Verse 7 sums up God's faithfulness to them, though, during those 40 years. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. Despite their unfaithfulness, God had proved faithful. Faithful to meet the needs of a wandering Israel. But in verse 14, there's a marked change. We're told, And the, t- and the time we took to come to Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zerid was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp just as the Lord had sworn to them. The first generation is now buried under the desert sands. But now the second generation moves northward, moves toward the promised land. And in the next few verses, you find them crossing over a small little tributary known as the River Arnon. Arnon flowed from Jordan down into the Dead Sea. And when they crossed over the Arnon, we're told in verse 25... This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Notice the shift. Notice the change in momentum. The Arnon was as far north as they had ever been. And this marked a turning point. A shift in momentum. And it's amazing how often big movements are marked By small events, they turn on seemingly insignificant events. A tipped pass, a diving catch, a clutch free throw can change the outcome of a whole game. And here was Israel crossing over a meaningless puddle, a brook, but it marked a turning point. Little things often mark turning points in our lives that end up producing Bigger and more monumental things. With this new momentum, we're told of how Israel defeats the kings east of the Jordan. Sihon of the Amorites and Og of the Bashanites. We learn in verse 11 that King Og was a giant. Or one of the last of the Nephilim. We don't know how big he was. But Og must have been a hog. For we are told the size of his bed, 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. You might say that was a real king-sized bed. In chapter 4, Moses encourages the second generation. Look in verse 7. He says, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon Him, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day. Only take heed to yourselves and diligently keep yourselves, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Man, they had access to God They received instruction from God, how blessed they truly were. And notice Moses tells them, Take heed lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Again, they had a responsibility to remember all that God had done for them. In chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are repeated. In chapter 6 contains what the Jews call the great Shema. Verse 4 is a declaration of the monotheistic nature of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Jewish creed. This is their affirmation of faith. And it is certainly a powerful statement that the true God is indeed one God. But the Shema holds an even deeper revelation. For the word translated one is the Hebrew word Echad, which rather than speak of an absolute unity, speaks of a compound unity. When the rabbis explain the word Echad, they hold up one fist. Then they point out that this one fist is indeed one, but it's made up also of five fingers. It's a compound unity. And this is a beautiful way, of course, of explaining and describing the triune nature of God. God is a compound unity. He is one God, but He exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I heard of a little girl who was asked if she knew the term. For the nature of God, that God is one God, but he's three persons. And of course, the teacher wanted the word Trinity. But the little girl thought for a minute and she said, the triplets. She was right on the third three persons, but God is three persons, but he is also one God. He is a compound unity. Chapter 6 also contains the command that Jesus called in Matthew chapter 22, The first and great commandment. Verse 5 records it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. Love God with all you've got. Be passionate in your love for God. And you remember what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? The second greatest commandment? You remember And love your neighbor as yourself. Look also at what the Lord tells us in verse 6. This is important for parents. He says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I love how God tells us to teach spiritual truth to our kids. He doesn't say hold daily Bible classes or sit down once a week and have a family devotion, although both those practices certainly have value. The preferred method, though, is a more hands-on approach, a more relational approach. The best approach to conveying spiritual truth to your kids is to integrate its application and its relevance into your everyday living. Teach God's truth on the go, on the flow, as you live. Apply it to real life situations. This is how Jesus taught his disciples. Very few times did they actually sit down and have a Bible study. Jesus taught on the go. As they were walking down the road, he would look over and he would see a man out sowing seed. And he would say, the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed seed. Or he would point to a flock of birds and he would say, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he just applied the truth to life as it was lived out. This is how we need to teach our kids. God tells them in verses 8 and 9, You shall bind them his commandments as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And on your gates. In other words, let the Word of God guide your every activity. Let it color your thoughts. Let it create the atmosphere in your home. Today, Orthodox Jews have taken these commandments literally. And you will see the rabbis wearing leather pouches on the back of their hand or on their forehead. They're called phylacteries, and they contain tiny little segments of Scripture. This is their way of binding it. On their forehead. The mezuzahs are weatherproof containers that hold the scriptures and they nail them onto the doorposts or onto the facade in the front of the house. And when the Jewish family enters or exits, they will all kiss the mezuzah as an expression of their love for God's word. I don't think we need to literally strap it on the back of our hand or nail it to the doorpost of our house. But I do think we need to take every opportunity we can to allow the Word of God to color the atmosphere of our homes, to penetrate our thoughts, to really saturate our lives and our thinking. We need to surround ourselves and our kids with God's Word. Quote it as often as you can. Live it out. Kathy, had, when she had more time, she did these little cross stitches and she did these beautiful uh, verses of Scripture on the cross stitch and she would hang them up all over the house and that was wonderful. It got the Word of God up in the house. Everybody could see it. It created an atmosphere. I love those plaques and those tapestries and those wall hangings that speak of Scripture. Decorate your house with those things. Do all you can to keep the Word of God in front of your kids. Chapter 6 verse 12 Warns the Hebrews and us, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't underestimate the responsibility to remember. It reminds me of the woman who was sitting outside the train station. She was sitting in her car and she was just weeping and crying as she was leaning over the the steering wheel. But as the policeman approached to ask her what was wrong, she noticed that she was kind of half weeping and she was half laughing. And she said, ma'am, what's wrong? She said, well, every morning I have gotten up and I have driven 20 miles to bring my husband to to get his train to go to work. And this morning I forgot him. (laughs) Can you believe it? And yet so often that's what happens to us. How can you forget your husband? How can you forget God? The children of Israel, after walking with him for 40 years, how could they forget him? And yet they did. Don't underestimate our responsibility to remember. It's important. In chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses reminds Israel and us of an important truth. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. But notice this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than other people for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and neither did God choose you because of your natural endowments or your learned skills or your good works. He chose us just because he loves us. Again, it's His mercy and it's His grace. It's not our goodness or merit. Notice also in chapter 7, verse 22, The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. God promises His people victory, but notice it will be won little by little in increments. You know, we would love to experience an overnight, instantaneous victory over all of our problems. We wish that's how it worked in the Christian life, and yet that's not how it happens. Often the battles are won little by little. Hey, inwardly, we are transformed overnight. In the moment we embrace Christ, we are transformed spiritually. But the working out of what God works in takes time. It occurs little by little. And along the way, we learn valuable lessons. Maturity develops. We need to be patient with the process. Deuteronomy 7, verse 26 is an important verse. It teaches us to hate. That's right. You need to hate. You need to hate sin. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Remember that the next time you bring back videos from Blockbuster. (coughs) Not to bring an abomination into your house. Evangelist Billy Sunday once said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. And I'll fight it as long as I got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as i got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. <laughs> That's the attitude we need to take towards sin. Hate sin. Love God. Both are needed to live a victorious Christian life. Chapter 8 tells us that God's purpose For the wilderness experience for the children of Israel was not just time to let the older generation die off. It was also a period to test the faith of the younger generation. You see, there are no self-made individuals in the desert. It takes daily miracles from God to survive those kinds of conditions. You have to learn to walk by faith. And that's what God was teaching them day after day, year after year as they traveled through the wilderness. Verse 4 recounts one of the miracles. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell those 40 years. Can you imagine? Our boys can wear out a pair of tennis shoes in six weeks. Imagine going 40 years with the same clothes, with the same shoes. That was a miracle. In verse 2, Moses tells them, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The wilderness was a lesson in trust and dependence. God saw to it that Israel was taught and tried and tested so that when they entered the land and began to enjoy its blessings, they wouldn't forget their need for God. That it was God that had brought them to that point. That it was God that had orchestrated their success. This is why he says in verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when you, your heart is lifted up, you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage. In other words. Never get so enamored. With the gifts. That you forget the giver. When your heart is lifted up. When you're riding high. When things are going well. Don't forget the God who made it all happen. Boy this this happens so often. I'm witness to it. I have people that come. And they're praying. And they're pleading. And they're trusting the Lord. They're seeking the Lord for blessing. And God blesses. But then they make the mistake in verse 17. Then we say in our hearts, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. God blesses us with the prosperity and with the abundance. But then we go off and take the credit. How dare us? How arrogant. How ungrateful. It reminds me of the woodpecker. It was just pecking on the trunk of the tree as hard as he could. It was a thunderstorm. And suddenly the tree was struck by lightning. Just as he hit it with his beak, split in two. He jumped back and he flexed his muscles and he thought, Wow, look at the power in my pecks. <laughs> just like the woodpecker God blesses God works miraculously and spontaneously and then we take the power we take the credit oh look at my pecs. hey God doesn't bless your business and your family and your finances for you to take the bows he does it so that he'll get the glory We need to live humbly before our God. Rather than our heart be lifted up, we need to walk with a lowly and humble heart. In chapters 9, Moses tells Israel that God will make them victorious not because of their righteousness but because of Canaan's wickedness. You see, grace is always the reason God blesses. God always blesses more in spite of us than because of us. (laughs) Never forget it. God rehearses for them the fiasco at Mount Sinai with the golden calf to remind the Hebrews that they're a stiff-necked or an obstinate people. They're stubborn. But the Canaanites were worse. And because of the Canaanites' wickedness, God has mercy on Israel and decides to bless him. He sums up his thoughts in chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's good admonition for you and me as well. In chapter 12, Moses commands the Hebrews to tear down the pagan altars after they enter the promised land. These scattered altars would be of no use in the worship of the true God. God will have one designated location for the people to come and worship. Today, everyone wants to decentralize, localize. We've got the community branch. We've got the local outlet. You can even do business at home on the internet. But when it comes to worship, God has always been into centralized authority. There's only one place that they're to come and worship. You see, if he had allowed the Israelites to worship on all these scattered altars, it wouldn't have taken long before pagan practice and false notions would have infiltrated their worship. And this is why he commands them all to worship only when they come up to the tabernacle. That's the only place where they are to offer their sacrifices. Today, the issues are no different. Yes, we no longer worship God at a physical location. We worship Him in spirit. But still, there is only one place that we are commanded to go where we can truly find God, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. In a spiritual sense, there's still only one designated place for worship. Worship is not like surfing the net. When you talk to someone and they say, well, I worship God my way and you worship God your way. They don't know anything about worship. Because worship is centralized. There was only one way to worship God. God gives us very limited options when it comes to worship. There is only one place to truly worship God even today. And that's in Christ Jesus. Chapter 13 is a command to rid the land of idolatrous influences. If a prophet or a family member or a corrupt person tries to lead you into sin, even if they secretly entice you, we're told, that person should be reported and should be punished. And I think we need to be careful about the evil influences in today's culture that are trying to secretly entice our kids. People that are guilty of that also need to be reported and punished today. Deuteronomy, in the next few chapters, rehearses the dietary laws. How to keep kosher or proper. And the kosher laws differentiated between clean and unclean animals, foods and meats. Which reminds me of the Jewish rabbi and the Catholic priest who were attending a public dinner. When the platter of baked ham was passed to the rabbi, he politely declined. But the priest jumped in and asked him, he said, Come on, when are you going to forget those silly rules and eat ham like the rest of us? The rabbi looked at him and replied, I will at your wedding. (laughs) Well, four kids later, I obviously don't believe that pastors need to be celibate. And if you ate lunch with me, you'd realize I have no aversion to ham sandwiches. And that's because the Jewish dietary law drew a distinction that's no longer necessary today. It was important that they understood the difference between clean and unclean animals. There was symbolic significance behind it. There was also some health benefits behind it. But today, with improved sanitary conditions and with good food service, The benefits have been minimized, and these laws are no longer binding upon us. The next two chapters deal with issues that we've already discussed. Tithes, the Sabbath year, the welfare system in Israel, the love slave, the law of the firstborn, and the three major Jewish feasts, Passover, Weeks or Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Chapter 17 anticipates a development that God never really desired. We'll discover later that God preferred to be the king of Israel. God himself wanted to be their king. But once in the land, the people looked around at the surrounding nations, and they too wanted a man to sit on the throne. And God, in his foreknowledge, knew that this would happen. And so he gave Moses three specific commands To regulate the king's power. The king was forbidden to accumulate three items. Horses or a cavalry. Wives or a harem. And silver and gold or financial reserves. Obviously, God does not believe in big government. You see, in times of war, God wanted the king to trust in him, not his horses. Or his war machinery. In times of peace, God wanted the king to strengthen his ties with heaven, not with foreign nations through the practice of exchanging daughters and wives. And at all times, God wanted the king's wealth to consist of his spiritual abundance, not just his money. In essence, broncos, babes, and bucks. Beware! It's interesting, Billy Graham once said, The three greatest dangers to every pastor are power, women, and money. Broncos, babes, and bucks. Husband, you too need to be careful. Because you are the king of your castle. And so don't you fall prey to the lure of power or to the lust of sex. Or to the love of money. Broncos, babes, and bucks, beware. An exciting prophecy appears in chapter 18, verse 18. There the Lord says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. In John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said to the Jews, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And I believe the prophet that Moses here anticipates is none other than Jesus Christ. No one in the history of Israel ever rose to the stature of Moses except Jesus. A.W. Pink in his commentary on Exodus lists 75 ways That Jesus was like Moses. As infants, both were attacked by tyrants who slaughtered innocent children. Both were redeemers. Both turned water to... or Moses turned water to blood. Jesus turned water to wine. Both were shepherds. Both were willing to die for their nation. Both interceded for their nation. Both were rejected by their brothers. Both fasted 40 days. Both occupied all three major Hebrew offices, prophet, priest, and king, and the list goes on and on and on. Hebrews chapter 3, though, makes it clear Jesus was not only like Moses, he was greater than Moses. You see, Jesus was a true prophet, but Moses also anticipates the coming of false prophets. And the next few verses gives us a couple of simple tests for how to discern a false prophet. Verse 20 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. In other words, if the prophet contradicts what God has already said in his word, or lures you into the worship of other gods, he should be branded a false prophet and be dealt with accordingly. And here's another test. Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, watch his track record. God doesn't make mistakes. And if a prophet continues to make false predictions, then obviously he's not a true prophet. The Jehovah's Witnesses said that Jesus would return in 1914. When he did it, they said he would return in 1975. I don't know what they're saying now. Mormons, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, both said that God told them that there were men on the moon, six feet tall, dressed like Quakers. We've been to the moon. We didn't see them there. (laughs) Obviously, these are false prophets. The church The Mormon church, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, you can compile several volumes of false prophecies that have come out of that church and from their leaders. According to Deuteronomy, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, are false prophets. What they teach cannot be trusted. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, an important law is mentioned for the very first time. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Make sure it's not my word against his word. Validate it with two witnesses. Chapter 20 provides instructions for the brink of battle. When it's time to fight, you don't want half-hearted people by your side. In the midst of conflict, you'd be better off by yourself than with people you can't trust. Even if you have to thin the ranks, it's better to take into battle only those people who are up for the fight. And this is my approach to ministry. (laughs) I want people by my side who are committed and focused and passionate. Because if they're not, If they're lukewarm or half-hearted, when the going gets rough in the heat of battle, they'll be more a liability than they will be a help. Chapters 21 through 23 contain a host of various laws that will apply to the Hebrews once they enter the land of Canaan. What to do with an unsolved murder? What to do with a beautiful POW that you want to marry? the rights of the firstborn, what to do with a rebellious child. That's interesting. We're told that the incorrigible child, the kid who won't respond to discipline, is to be taken to the elders of the city, then drug out and stoned with rocks. You see, the old covenant had only an external standard. It had no power to change the heart. And that's why there was really no hope for the incorrigible person. You know, there was nothing that could change them. The old covenant was powerless to produce change. To convict, yes. To produce change, no. But under the new covenant, God is able to take out the heart of stone, the rebellious heart, and replace it with a soft heart and a compliant heart. And that's why under the New Covenant, there is hope for the rebellious child, the incorrigible kid. There is hope. I'll tell you what you need to do with the rebellious kid. You need to turn him over to Jesus. Because only Jesus can transform his life. Only Jesus can change his heart. And if you've got one of those kids tonight, I just encourage you to turn him over to the Lord. Let the Lord deal with him. Let the Lord work with him. The Lord can change his heart. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 explain one of the reasons the Jews had such a hard time accepting Jesus as God's Son and their Messiah. We're told, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. The Jews wondered, how could Jesus be the Son of God, yet be accursed by God? Since anyone who hung was accursed. Well, it takes Rabbi Paul to explain it. And in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, he tells us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, Jesus bore our curse so that we could be blessed. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 is, in my opinion, an extremely significant verse. There we're told, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. Nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Cross-dressing. Masquerading as the opposite sex is not a fun, harmless, innocent fascination. It's a distortion of sexual identities. When God created us, He created us male and female, and we should never allow those boundaries to be blurred. I think, even if done jokingly, still cross-dressing is an unhealthy practice. I believe in our homes and in our society, we should do all that we can to promote masculinity among men and femininity among women. Reminds me of the older lady who made the comment, Oh, for the day when men were men and women were proud of it. In chapter 22, God mixes environmental concerns with safety issues, with ceremonial laws, with moral principles, with domestic grievances, with criminal offenses. They all get addressed one after another in this chapter. Verse 10 mentions a law that teaches by analogy... An important spiritual lesson. There we're told, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now that's simple enough. You don't put an ox and a donkey in the same harness. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul uses this verse to warn believers about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. He gives it a spiritual application. You see, an ox and a donkey have different natures. And when placed in the same harness, they'll fight against each other. They'll work against each other. And the same is true with a believer and an unbeliever. When harnessed in the same marriage, or when yoked together in a business partnership, they'll discover that they have different priorities. And they'll end up in constant conflict. And they'll end up fighting and pulling against one another. And it's misery. You don't want it. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. In chapter 24, God regulates divorce. But understand, just because He regulates it, doesn't mean He approves of it. Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 makes it clear, the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. Here, in an attempt to curb divorce... God formulates a procedure for it and he makes it more difficult to obtain. He's not approving of it. He's trying to make it harder to get. And he requires two steps. First, a certificate had to be obtained. Now, prior to this law, all a man had to do to divorce his wife was to tell her goodbye and set her out on the street. That was it. But here, regulations are imposed that force him to visit the city elders for a certificate. And this would necessitate a cooling off period. This would require public exposure. So now he's got to think, can we work out the problems? Do I want to go through the public humiliation of a failed marriage? And because of the delay, rash judgments were reconsidered. And many of the people thought, well, why don't we go ahead and give it another try? And they were glad that they did. The second requirement for divorce is he forbids the person divorcing his wife from ever remarrying her again. If he divorces her, he can't change his mind. Not two weeks later, not two years later, not 20 years later. And this certainly caused a man to seriously consider going through with a divorce. And so here in the Law of Moses, he establishes two principles that are intended to make divorce harder. Not to approve of it, but to make it harder and more difficult to obtain. God is discouraging it because God doesn't approve of it. He hates divorce. Chapter 25, verse 3 reads, 40 blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. Jewish tradition said that... If the person administering the lashes exceeded forty, then the overzealous executioner would receive forty blows himself, and that's why, to be on the safe side, the man with the whip always stopped at thirty-nine. And then over in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-four, when Paul lists his numerous persecutions, he says, "From the Jews." Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Notice the 39. That was the custom. Chapter 25, verse 11 and 12, lists the penalty for a wife jumping into her hubby's fight and hitting his opponent below the belt. But understand... This law does not apply to my daughter if a boy ever gets fresh with her. Because I've instructed her, and I'm sure that God would approve, that a blow below the belt will produce exactly what she wants to produce and send the proper message. And so this is just for wives jumping into husbands' fights. This has nothing to do with daughters fending off unwanted advances. Let's make that clear. We encourage those blows below the belt. At the end of chapter 25, the Lord targets the Amalekites for reprisal. These were the people who jumped on the Hebrews just as soon as they had exited Egypt. They were the bullies that were picking on the little kids. And God always sees that the bullies are punished. In chapter 27, Moses schedules a promised land pep rally. When they cross the Jordan, they're to proceed to the heart of the land, to the valley of Shechem. North of this slender valley was Mount Ebal. South was Mount Gerizim. Both peaks were about 3,000 feet high. Now imagine a million people on one mountain. Half the tribes, another million, gathered on the other mountain. In my mind, I'm picturing a high school gymnasium. The student body is divided. Half in the bleachers on one side of the floor. Half in the bleachers on the other side of the floor. And the chant starts up. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And back and forth it goes. That's what we had. That's sort of what happens later when we get to the Valley of Shechem. God gives the nation a series of blessings and curses. And from Mount Ebal, the curses are shouted, while the blessings are shouted from Mount Gerizim. We got curses, yes we do. We got curses. We got blessings, yes we do. We got blessings. And back and forth it goes. And it all happens in Joshua chapter 8, and we're going to talk more about it when we get there. Haley's Bible handbook states, The 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, placed alongside the history of the Hebrew nation, constitutes one of the most astounding and indisputable evidences of the divine inspiration of the Bible. These blessings and curses form uncanny parallels with the ups and downs of Hebrew history. He begins in chapter 28 with the blessings. If you obey God, you'll be blessed. And verse 13 really sums it up. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today and are careful to observe them. But in verse 15, the curses begin. If you disobey God, you'll be cursed. And here he goes and enumerates the curses. A friend of mine saw a documentary once on the Holocaust. And various photographs were shown We're talking the type of things that would cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up, gross things, terrible things. But at the bottom of each of these pictures were verses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it was amazing how they paralleled what happened to the Jews in Nazi Germany. Verse 48 is one example. You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, And in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck. Until he has destroyed you. It's really amazing to realize that the horrors of the Holocaust were predicted 3500 years in advance. By Moses. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. Are also clearly seen in these many different verses. The last 2,000 years of Jewish history can be summed up in verses 64 through 66. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone, and among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, Failing eyes and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. And for the last 2,000 years, that's exactly what's happened to the Jewish people until our day. And for the first time in 2,000 years, the Jews have been regathered according to Scripture. And we're seeing events prophesied for the last days taking place right before our very eyes. In chapter 29, Moses tells the Hebrews that they're going into the land to uproot a wicked people. They are God's instruments of judgment. But he warns them not to adopt the practices of the Canaanites. Because they'll be destroyed as well. The irony of all ironies would be for God to judge the people who were sent to be judges. Chapter 29, verse 29 is an interesting verse. It says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, don't let the things you don't know distract you from what you do know. There are a million mysteries in life and in the scripture that won't be unraveled until we get to heaven. But don't let the secret mysteries divert you from the clear commands. It's as Mark Twain once put it, It ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand and need to obey. (laughs) Don't get caught up with the mysteries and neglect the clear commands. In chapter thirty. Again, God's omniscience rises to the surface. For even though nothing has happened yet, all these predictions are still just predictions. They're prophecies. Yet God knows the end from the beginning, and He foresees the nation's failures. And this is why in verse 2 He says, "...and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice." He gives them hope that one day they will return, and He will restore them. He says in verse 3, "...for the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity." And have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Wow. They will be scattered, but God will restore them and redeem them and bring them back. In verse 15, Moses makes the choice as plain as he can state it. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If they obey the Lord and walk in His ways, they'll receive life and good. If they disobey, they'll receive death and evil. You see, Moses made the choice plain. But he provided them no power to follow through with the right choice. And this is another way that Jesus is better than Moses. For Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do as much as he puts it in our hearts to do it. This is the Wonder of the new covenant. He doesn't just say obey. He gives us the power to obey. This is why Jesus is a better deliverer than Moses. And it's all so symbolic that Moses was unable to lead the people into the promised land. That job was left up to a man by the name of Joshua. And if you were to translate the word Joshua into the Greek guess what it would be? Jesus. Jesus. Moses will only take you so far. He'll teach you right from wrong, but he can't lead you into God's rest and God's blessing. That takes the blood of Jesus to cover your sin and to create within you a new heart and produce for you an unbroken stream of God's power and blessing that cleanses and matures and makes us fruitful. Only through Christ can we enter the spiritual promised land and know God's peace and enjoy His rest and produce fruit pleasing to Him. Moses couldn't do that. The law can't do that. It takes Jesus for that to be accomplished in our hearts. Moses sings a song in chapter 32. It may not have been a rock and roll song, but it's about a rock that doesn't roll. For Verses 3 and 4 say, Ascribe greatness to our God, for He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. As he continues, Moses' song becomes prophetic. Though God protected Israel as the apple or the pupil of his eye, nevertheless, Israel grew fat and sassy. Jezeron, verse 15, means upright. And it was God's way of being sarcastic. Israel wasn't being upright. She was being downright foolish. Israel forgot how much she needed God. And in verse 18... We're told, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. How tragic. Remember, we have the responsibility to remember. Believe it or not, verse 21 gives us a glimpse of our own salvation. We're told, I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. You remember in Romans chapter 10, verse 19, Paul quotes this verse to explain the effect of salvation of the Gentiles, the effect that the salvation of the Gentiles will have upon the Jews. When the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying the blessings intended for Jews, it'll make the Jews jealous. It'll cause them to turn to Jesus Christ. It's jealousy evangelism. And this is the verse that Paul uses to describe it when he gets over to Romans chapter 10. Chapter 32 is the end of the road for Moses. God sends him up to the top of Mount Pisgah or Nebo where he views the promised land. He dies and he passes on to his reward. And in chapter 33, Moses says his farewells, a final blessing to each Of the twelve tribes of Israel. I love the last few words of Moses. Verses 26 and 27. There we're told. There was no one like the God of Jezreel. Who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. As a kid we used to sing. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Remember that song? This is where it comes from right here. The eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Let me close by reading the last eight verses of Deuteronomy. I think it's best that we let these verses speak for themselves. They were probably added later by Joshua. Beginning in verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And there's the book of Deuteronomy.